Welcome to the bookshelf. I'm Magdalena Clough. Tonight, we continue our reading of A Key to Treehouse Living by Elliot Reed. The novel is written in the form of a glossary-style list, which our protagonist, William, compiles as a way to understand the world around him. Now, here's Trevor Rao, reading A Key to Treehouse Living. Bugling. There are many different brass instruments known to man, one of which is the bugle. Before you start bugling, make sure that what you have is actually a bugle. Bugles can be recognized by their brass curves and lack of buttons. It is important that your bugle have a mouthpiece. That's the cone-shaped silver thing you blow the air into. Put your lips together and make a fart-like buzzing noise by pushing air through your tightly closed lips. The buzzing noise should not be made with the air you have stored in the pocket of your mouth, but rather with the air from your lungs. Put your lips to the bugle and buzz into it. The buzzing sound is what creates bugle music. The bugle can be used to create a huge variety of sounds, and there are many different songs you can play once you get to be a good bugler. Even if you can't play any songs, you can still use the bugle to get attention of someone in the distance. Bugling Uncle Look out across the shiny new mansions at the edge of town, at the nearly identical mansions built on huge lawns that butt up against the old forest, and imagine the kinds of people who live in these buildings. Odds are that one of them is somebody's uncle. My uncle made his fortune playing the bugle at nursing homes and then wisely investing his earnings into the stock market. Remember this, he said one day when a teacher from my school called to talk to him on the phone about me. Remember this when people come up and tell you something you're doing will never get you anywhere. Remember about the time when your uncle got a $5 bill as a tip at a bugle gig and how he decided on a whim to take it down to some hobos who hung out by the railroad tracks. He loved money, and he needed it, but for some reason on that day, he just knew he had to take the money down to the guys at the railroad tracks. Remember how one of those hobos turned out to be in real estate. I've never forgotten the story. He slammed the phone on its receiver, got down on one knee, and squeezed my hand tightly while he told it to me. I didn't know what real estate meant, but I knew that it was good. My uncle said he was mostly retired by the time I moved in with him, but he still blew the bugle once in a while and he never stopped thinking about money. I loved to run full tilt through the long carpeted halls of his mansion and down the stairs to the maze-like concrete basement. I'd run barefoot in the hot summer across the cool basement floor to the chest freezer stocked with plastic tubes of sweet colored ice. My uncle never cared how many I had until one day when I melted some of the ice tubes and used the colored liquid for art. And then he stopped buying them. Bus comma stopped. If you're traveling through the countryside and you look off the road, you'll see a lot of stopped buses. If you look carefully, sometimes you'll see people living in these buses. People live in buses the same way kids live in tree houses, and some gypsies live in parachutes. See Gypsy Parachute House. I have a photograph I found on an archaeological expedition that proves I once lived in a stopped bus. The bus in the picture was once a school bus. Then my parents got it, drove it to the top of the hill, and shut off the engine for good. There's a table outside the folding door of the bus. There are plastic chairs around the table and an umbrella in the middle. Flower pots hang from the bus's windows, and there are two chaise lounges on the roof for watching stars. My parents planted a garden right next to the bus and sat at the table in the shade of the umbrella after they worked in the garden. You see it all in the picture. Inside the bus, where you can't see, where there used to be seats for school children, there was a bed, a radio, and a bookcase. You can't see inside the bus in the picture, but I remember what it was like because I've been in there myself.
The baby in the photo is me. I'm on a blanket spread out in the garden, and I'm tiny. My mother is there next to me, and my father is taking the picture. I know this because he wrote on the back of it, and because he printed the photo on the enlarger that my uncle kept hidden away in the basement. Boredom. If it's pouring rain out and you're trapped inside for a whole afternoon at a time, you'll have to come up with some way of entertaining yourself indoors. Otherwise, you will suffer from boredom. If you're used to being outside every afternoon, let's say you've gotten into a routine of exploring the woods around your treehouse, hacking paths through thickets and constructing elaborate booby traps for unwanted visitors, and let's say you have a particularly elaborate booby trap in the works, a trap that is nearly complete and that must be completed soon because a gang of bullies has discovered the secret location of your tree fort, but it's pouring rain outside and so to travel to the fort, much less construction of the booby trap, is not feasible. You will find yourself staring out the window at the dark clouds behind the tree line, dark and only getting darker, and you'll make bets on which drops of rain will be the first to make it down the bottom of the window pane. That's boredom. If you're lucky, you'll have a beta fish. A beta fish can be counted on to provide a solid hour or so of entertainment when presented with a photograph of another beta fish through the glass of its tank. There are only so many times a beta fish can attack the picture through the glass, though. If you give the fish the picture too often, you can hurt it. Boredom is not just dangerous for beta fish. Boredom is also dangerous for your relationship with your uncle. You get a lot of ideas when you're bored, so it's important to tell the difference between a good idea and a bad idea. It's a bad idea, for instance, to melt ice pops on old photographic equipment. It's a good idea, on the other hand, to read a book. If you get bored of reading, you can write your own story or draw your own pictures, but even that can get boring. I remember one particularly rainy spring when my uncle was always gone and I had whole days to myself. At the time, I was working on the best treehouse I'd ever built. The sycamore it was in was ancient and had perfect structure. The fort was surrounded by booby traps and had two little windows you could shoot rocks out of. Six kids once tried to take us over. They made it through the first line of booby traps and it was just me and Ned up there. But we were ready. Two versus six and we won. Ned sustained a stone to the eye thrown by a long-armed boy named Tony who, it turned out, was the top pitcher in Little League. But Ned didn't bleed for long and we were able to do far worse to the attackers. See... It's hard to write about boredom without getting distracted by telling something interesting. It was a high-caliber treehouse I had the year it was so rainy the pond tripled in size and sucked in one of the mansions being built on the other side of the pond. The year my uncle was always away at the tracks and I had so much time by myself that my imagination was too weak to defend me from boredom. My uncle was gone most of the time, and when he was home, he was depressed because the bets weren't going his way. He would just watch the rain in silence and ignore me. And that's about the only time I ever wished I had another uncle or my original parents. See also neglect. I tried, in desperation, to make it to the treehouse, which I knew must have been rotting in the torrential rain, but I ended up almost getting swept away by a stream that was deeper than I thought it was. Boating in basements. If your basement is flooded, you'll want to launch a boat. It will be impossible to get a canoe downstairs, and an inner tube won't work because you won't want to touch the dirty water. The best thing to do when water fills your basement is to build a little boat and launch it into the flood. I used to spend hours launching little homemade boats on the staircase that disappeared into the water. In the basement was a dark, quiet sea that my uncle ignored. I remember floating candles, launching them on little boats on the sea in the basement, and watching them burn out in the darkness. 
but even that became boring. I started talking to my beta fish. The fish became so bored that he began to swim upside down, so I cut him loose in the flood. And then finally I became so bored that I tried to read the phone book. I'd exhausted every book in the house by that point except one. A huge ancient tome with a name so boring it actually gave me physical pain. Flynn's Guide to Woody Trees and Shrubs, 8th edition, with additional flowcharts and expanded glossary. I found it beneath the kitchen and dragged it up to my room. On the cover was a faded black and white photograph of an expressionless man dressed in an unremarkable shirt and unremarkable pants standing beside a tree. I felt a glimmer of hope that this man might tell me somewhere in this manual something that I might be able to use to improve my tree fort. The pages were like a phone book, and the print was almost as small. Most of the book seemed to be in Latin. The descriptions, when in English, were full of words I'd never heard before. For instance, I kept running into the words weeping habit, used in reference to certain Latin names. When at last I flipped to the back of the enormous book and found weeping habit in the glossary, I forgot to ever turn back. I was on my tenth reading of Flynn's glossary and had begun my first little list. A short catalog of all the things in my treehouse with entries like throwing rock and escape rope and spirit beetle when I realized that the boredom had receded. Calibrating the balloons. Depending on what kind of gas you use to inflate a balloon and how big you inflate it, different things will happen when you let the balloon go. Inflating a balloon is one thing, though, and calibrating an inflated balloon is another. If you say you're going to calibrate a balloon, you mean you're working on a special weather device the balloon carries with it when it floats into the sky. If on a windy spring day, you are walking to the city park with your buddy Ned, who was on a skateboard, and if you chose to walk down a street full of vendors of hot foods, inevitably you will pass alleys. If you remember to always look down these alleys, or if your timing is perfect and he's just coming out of the alley and preparing to cross the busy street, you will have an encounter with the former air quality officer known as El Ondero. El Ondero will explain to you that he has been spending much of his time this spring exploring the shadowy alleys of downtown, walking and thinking, trying to make discoveries. You can't be sure what El Ondero is looking for in these alleys unless you ask him. One day he'll say he's looking for a lost cat that belongs to a friend. The next day he's recycling circuits behind the computer repair shop. He almost always wears a beige-colored trench coat without a single hole or stain, no matter the weather, and the wiry black strands of his hair spill out across the shoulders despite his frequent attempts to tuck the strands behind his ears. It might be hard to guess based on the hair and the thick beard that sometimes covers his face, but El Andero is a recent college graduate. El Andero got fired for a number of reasons, but especially because of the accident, and he was forced to pay a lot of money to replace the specialized instruments. Since then, he's abandoned his material connections to society so he can focus full-time on his archaeological research. Climbing trees. First, make sure the tree isn't dead on the inside. Some trees can look alive, but are actually totally rotted out. A good heavy kick to the trunk will help you figure out if it's rotten or not. If it sounds hollow, or if your boot actually goes into the tree, or if the tree falls down when you kick it, then you know the tree is no good for climbing. Next, make sure to check the canopy. That's the part of the tree above your head. If someone's already up there, you'll have to ask them for permission to climb, unless the tree is in fact your tree in which case you will then have to decide whether to climb up there and join the other climber, or whether you'll ask that climber to get out of your tree first. 
Choices of locomotion. How you get somewhere depends on when you have to be there and what the land is like between you and that place. In my dreams, I get everywhere by zipline, or by zeppelin, or by flying. If there's a river, I canoe it. When I went to the moon in a dream and wrote a book about the different types of rocks there, I traveled with a rocket pack. In the real world, the options are more limited. If you have all day to get there, it's best to walk through the woods. The woods are better than the road because people aren't always trying to run you over or stop and pick you up. In the woods, you can be left alone. If you come upon a tent in the woods and some clothes hanging from the branches of a tree nearby, don't go knock on that tent. The tent camper in the woods within city limits is the kind of person who wants to be left alone. If you were in a treehouse, it would be different. But the fact is, the fun's long gone out of camping for him, and he's sleeping close to the dirt because that's where he feels the safest. Cork raft. Raft made of wine cork, toothpicks, and napkin sail. Get a wine cork, stab a toothpick in it, and tape a triangular piece of cut-up napkin on the toothpick mast. Load it with passengers and let go. The cork raft does well in a creek or a flooded basement. The sail is mostly for show. It'll still float if it tips. Put an ant on the cork raft, and he'll stay on the cork even if it rolls totally over. Load him on using a second toothpick you've gotten him to climb onto. Don't expect to get the cork raft back after you've launched it. If you're too lazy to build one yourself, go down to the creek that runs through the park and check among the driftwood and stones. You'll find a lot of wine corks that were never cork rafts, and some whose masts have long since rotted away. Careful entry of neglected forts. If a fort has not been used in a while, like after the most rainy spring you can remember, odds are a snake or two will try it out. Often these are green tree snakes since, of course, forts are often found in trees. Most snakes are harmless, though some city parks are home to exotic venomous species that were kept as pets for a while and then released. A snake in a fort is best evicted with a long stick. If your fort is the type accessed from below with a trapdoor system, it's best to poke a mirror up through the trapdoor before you stick your head in so you can check for snakes from a position of safety. Caution in forts. Visitors usually appear in springtime. This is because people are spending more time outside once the weather has turned nice, and inevitably they'll come across the tree forts built in the city parks over the winter. Tree forts built by hard-working crews of boys and girls who take breaks to warm their hands over barrel fires after hammering for hours in the frigid building season, some even traveling to and from the construction site on ice skates. In the spring is when I'd be up in the fort with my pals and we'd get visitors. Of course, we were prepared for visitors of any nature, we were armed to the teeth, but also had a huge chest full of magazines, cards for playing and cards for trading, cigarettes, fireworks, jelly beans, and a radio. One time, my uncle visited and took us all out to his mansion for Pop-Tarts and sodas. Another time, someone claiming to be a fireman tried to come rescue us from our perfectly comfortable tree fort. We had to beat on his fingers with a hammer. Courage. Courage is doing something risky. Sometimes, just getting out of bed in the morning requires courage. Other times, you'll find yourself working up the courage to do something risky and terrifying like jumping from a high place into a body of water. You'll know you're working up the courage when you look down and feel your body talking to you. Like when you're at the top of a cliff and the lake looks like it's a mile below you and there's your pal Ned treading water in the expanding ripple from his cannonball and you feel your calves quiver and what they're saying to you in calf language is, don't you dare, and they're probably right, you probably shouldn't. Or Take another example, an example where courage can lead to more substantial and long-lasting gains than the momentary thrill of falling through nothingness. A half mile or so from your uncle's mansion, 
where you're living is a rundown trailer. You don't know the people who live in that trailer, but they look like they have an interesting take on life that might be different from the one you're used to. And more importantly, it looks like they really know how to have a good time. So one day you decide to go there and talk to them. You go up there and knock on the door, which is a screen door, and behind which is darkness, darkness and the sound of a little radio playing fuzzy country music. And you call out, hello, into the darkness and knock again. And this time you hear something thumping in the darkness. Thumps followed by a crash and instinctively you run. Courage in this situation would be to return to the trailer and bang on the door once more. Courage would be asking yourself, what's the worst that could happen? And not thinking for too long about the answer to that question. Cleaning lady. Cleaning ladies are mostly ladies, though there are one or two boys who have done it. But still, the boss of the cleaning ladies, along with the people who have their mansions cleaned, call the cleaning ladies ladies, even if one of those cleaning ladies is a boy. I know this because I was once a cleaning lady for a day. A teenager named Carla got me the job, and I only lasted one day at it because it was the worst job I'd ever had, and the pay was no good. Carla said they were desperate, and since she kind of knew me, I could join the crew. She said they'd hired a 12-year-old before, so 13 was no big deal. I was on my way to the treehouse when Carla whistled at me from the front porch of her house. I stopped to see why she'd whistled, and she told me the deal and said that work would start on Saturday. Tomorrow was Saturday, and Carla said that the boss would pay in cash, and that one day's work could get me as much as 50 bucks. 50 bucks would be enough to buy a camouflage parachute I'd had my eye on, so I said yes to the job. This was sometime after the flood, a little before the gypsies came. Cleaning houses was a bad job right off the bat. First, Carla was 30 minutes late to pick me up. When she showed up, she was in a truck being driven by her friend, another cleaning lady named Liz. Liz was so fat I could barely squeeze between her and Carla in the truck. And Liz was mean. Liz had a bottle of schnapps and was drinking it that morning and saying that whatever Carla said was stupid. Carla talked to Liz about me like I wasn't there. She told Liz that I was probably going to an orphanage and that my friend Ned had told her I wasn't like other kids. You just tell this kid to do something and he'll get into it, whatever it is, she said. And Liz looked over at me for a second, but then looked back at the road and took another sip of schnapps, which smelled a lot like cleaning product. I could think of plenty of things I wouldn't do whether or not you told me to do it. Drink that schnapps, for instance. But I didn't say anything because I could tell I wasn't supposed to talk, and I could tell that it didn't really matter what anybody said. My feet got cold because the heat in the truck didn't work, and I'd stepped in a puddle when I was getting in the car. Carla remembered she'd forgotten the vacuum, so we had to go get it from her house. Liz called Carla a bunch of bad names on the way there, and Carla didn't say anything back. She just smoked a cigarette and turned up the radio. Then Liz looked at a tree on the side of the road and called the tree a bad name, and that's when I realized bad names were most of the words that Liz knew, or at least the only ones she really wanted to use. After we got the vacuum, we went to the wrong mansion at the wrong time. Carla said I should go in first and that the key to the mansion was under a flower pot by the door. I found the key and went in, but inside a woman wearing a white robe was vacuuming. She screamed when she saw me. I said I was a cleaning lady, though I knew it was a dumb thing to say because she was already cleaning, which meant we were in the wrong mansion. She yelled at me to get out, that I was supposed to be there on Tuesday. I said I was sorry, and I got out. I ran back to the truck where Carla and Liz were waiting, and I told them what had happened, and they just laughed at me. Liz called the woman in the robe a bad name without even knowing what she looked like. In the next house we went to, I had to scrub dog pee off a carpet while a cocker spaniel watched me from the cage where his owners kept him locked up all day. I cleaned up the pee on the carpet, and then I saw the puddle of pee the dog was standing in.
I let him out of there to clean out the cage, and at that point I realized I might as well let the dog out of the house altogether, which I did, and which I felt good about, which I also figured ended my career as a cleaning lady. So I found the master bathroom, filled the bath with a couple inches of hot water, and warmed up my feet. There were six bottles of shampoo on the edge of the bathtub, each of which had something called jojoba in it. Back in the truck, I told Carla and Liz that I quit. Carl gave me five bucks and I was fine with it because of what I'd been able to do for the dog, which nobody ever said anything about afterwards. So I assume he hit the woods for good, where he became wild again and sired lots of mutts. I thought Liz would be mad or say something mean to me when I told her I quit, but she didn't. She just ate a sandwich and said nothing. I noticed that Liz had some teeth missing and that her missing teeth forced her to chew only with the right side of her mouth, which made me forget about how mean she'd been earlier. You have to be tough to be a cleaning lady. Definitely, I guess I wasn't. Coyotes in the park. Coyotes live in the wilderness, but they also live in big city parks. The sound of a pack of coyotes can be ominous, see ominous, or it can be thrilling. Animals perk up when they hear coyotes. Some animals get scared by the sound of coyotes, while others rush off to join the pack. Let's say you're sitting on the porch of your uncle's mansion, and at sunset, and the coyotes start making noise somewhere in the distance. You hear yelps and high-pitched howls in one direction, and they'll start up all at once and then drop right back off. Right after that, you hear another group of coyotes calling to the first coyote pack, responding, talking coyote from someplace else. The sound of coyotes might cause you to feel strangely lonely, especially if you're prone to getting lonely right before you go to bed. See, lonely. Let's say your uncle starts howling back at the coyotes. He will howl, he will bark, and he will decide to visit the casino. But let's say you've once again snuck into the abandoned Victorian in the park downtown with your friend Ned, and by the light of a flashlight, the two of you are looking through an old book you found in the top floor bedroom when the coyotes start howling. If it's just you and Ned and you're already a little nervous since you're in a place where you're not supposed to be, and the coyotes sound like they're close, they sound like they must be living in one of the old trees you know off in the park that's right outside the Victorian, you'll feel afraid. If the book you're reading is a huge old dictionary and the page you're flipped to is the page with the definition of coyote, see coincidence, and you hear four legs coming up the creaking wooden stairs, the tack-tack-tack of a dog's toenails outside the room you're in, and the door to the room is open, the flashlight beam will shake in your hand and your body will be frozen in fear. You may become sure you're about to die. Ned may have a breakdown, see down comma breaking, if it's a coyote coming up the stairs, you will have to fight it off. If it's the guard dog coming up the stairs with his tail between his legs, calm Ned down and leave before the guard dog works up his courage and decides he's bad. Crispy Old Plastic Forts designed and made from scratch are a lot better than the store-bought forts made of plastic parts that you take out of a box and put together according to a diagram. For some reason, plastic forts are replacing the old-fashioned hammer and nails variety especially in neighborhoods like the one my uncle lived in. One good thing about a plastic fort is that it will never rot. Over many years, though, the plastic walls will slowly be crisped by sunlight. If you walk the woods and weed-buried fields along the outskirts of suburban neighborhoods, it's only a matter of time before you'll find an old plastic fort overturned and half-hidden by weeds. Finding one of these abandoned structures, you'll feel the need to learn about who lived in it. At one time, you'll think this fort was ruled by two children, and those children imagined it was a castle. You'll stand there looking into the dirt-filled corners and light coming through the plastic, 
and you'll try to imagine what she looks like now. The grown-up girl who played in this fort, who carved flowers in its walls and the next day abandoned it. Construction site. A construction site is a place where workers and machines are building a new building or tearing one down, or both. If you play a lot of hide-and-seek, odds are you've played in a construction site, or you've at least considered it as a possibility. But the first thing the construction workers do when they start a new construction site is put up a huge fence around it so that kids can't come in there and play with their tools or steal supplies for their treehouses. Construction site hide-and-seek is best played at night just as long as there's no night watchman or any other kind of daddy, see, daddies, around to bust you. Besides that, there's only one other thing that you need to be careful about. Don't get swallowed up by a pipe. I remember I was once running full tilt across the construction site at night. Ned was chasing me. I vaulted by a pile of 2x4s, swung on a chain that was dangling from a metal beam, crawled through a concrete tunnel partially filled with mud, got up, ran some more, then saw a wide plastic hole in the ground and stopped to take a look. Ned was way behind me by then, so I had a little time. Well, the plastic hole, it turned out, was a pipe in the ground that went down really far. I realized it was a great place to hide, so I lowered myself into it and dangled from the rim of the pipe. I was able to dangle there for a minute or two before my arms started to give out and I pulled myself out of it. Then I called Ned over and showed him the pipe. We dropped a rock down there and never heard it hit, so we established that the hole was very deep. Around a month later, Ned came up to me and said that some kid in the first grade had fallen in there and gone down at least 300 feet and died. When I think about that kid, I feel sick. Canoeing ponds. Let's get one thing out of the way first. Snakes love taking shelter beneath overturned canoes. Most people store their canoes on the edges of ponds, bottom up, paddles down, everything ready for a quick launch. So many people have done this for so long that snakes have gotten used to it and have taught each other about the shaded grass under the canoe. Whenever you turn over a canoe, you should be prepared to encounter a snake. The snake, when its canoe has been overturned, will make a quick break for the water. Do not stand between the snake and the water. Allow the snake to go and always check for more snakes that may have been trapped in the canoe as you flip it over. The last thing you want is to realize you're sharing the canoe with a snake while you're out in the middle of a pond. Once you've conducted the snake check, you're all ready to canoe. If it's a windy day on the pond, be ready to encounter the reeds and the cattails. If it's a calm, placid day on the pond and the water looks like a piece of glass, you're in for an easy paddle. You get around in the canoe by paddling or by pushing off the bottom with a long stick. But be careful. If you're using a stick to pull around the pond, say you're trying to be silent so that you can bag a bullfrog or two, take care not to push yourself into deep water where your pole cannot touch the bottom. In this case, when you try to push off the bottom with your pole, you will fall overboard. You have been listening to A Key to Treehouse Living, a novel by Elliot Reed, read by Trevor Rao. This episode of The Bookshelf was produced by Chris Massini and me, Magdalena Clough. Music by Dr. Turtle. Executive producer is Vern Windham. You can find this and other past episodes of The Bookshelf online at spokanepublicradio.org.